can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We continue our study through the Gospel of John here today. And Lord willing, we will be covering today verses 19 through 24 of John 18. And at this time, I would ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we read together verses 19 through 24. And then we will pray and then begin working through it. John 18 and verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, bow with me once again to the Lord. Heavenly Father, O Lord God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your power. O God, that You have not left us as we are, as we would be, but that in strength You have reached forth Your hand to accomplish Your will, to build Your church, establishing us as Your people. O God, I ask that You would move among us now. Lord, help us to rightly understand the truths of these verses. Lord, apply them to our very souls. O God, we have come together, many through tears and struggle, strife and difficulty in living. But we know that Your Word promises those who seek You will find You. And we know, O God, You've promised to meet with us as we gather. God, I pray that You would bless us, not because we deserve it, not according to merit, but because of Your grace and mercy and Your faithfulness. Oh God, guard me from misspeaking. Shut my mouth, even as we heard in the call to worship. Shut the doors of my lips, if I would speak wrongly. Oh Lord, but grant boldness. Grant real authority. Power from on high. To say what must be said, what you would have said. And oh God, let us hear from you. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may recall last week we were looking here in the previous verses of John 18 and looking at Peter's denial. And we saw the road to denial. We saw those elements in Peter's life which are detailed for us here of what it is that often leads both genuine Christians to a position of denying the Lord, of not living consistently before God, and of suffering and coming into a kind of chastisement that the Lord's faithful to bring. We saw that embodied in Peter, but also those things which will suck professing Christians who are not truly born again away from the Lord. Those patterns that lead to denial. And then here we come today together to look at the questioning of Jesus before this high priest. The title of this sermon is An Unhidden Message. An Unhidden Message. And we see in verse 19, it says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. First thing to see in this verse is how ready men are to set themselves up as an authority over Jesus Christ. You see here, they questioned him as though they were his superiors. They assumed that they had the right to sit in judgment over Jesus Christ. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Can you imagine that? This human, merely man, high priest, sinful, evil high priest, bringing into question and judgment the high priest between man and God. Consider from Job chapter 9, the insanity of man setting himself up as a judge over God. 
Job chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Consider these things in light of what's on display for us here between Jesus and the high priest. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could answer him at once and a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Who removes mountains and they know it not? When he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? That's Job telling us who God is and how man is utterly insufficient to standing in judgment before God, standing in judgment over God. Here the high priest questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And you know, this is a very common thing that happens today. This is exactly what happens in the context of the culture that we live in. Atheists set themselves up as an authority over Jesus Christ, as though they somehow or another are able to question his existence and criticize his word. The atheist says, I'm a judge over Jesus. I'm a judge over God. He doesn't exist because I don't like the one that does exist. So I'm going to pretend he doesn't. They're the authority. They question and challenge him. The scientists, quote unquote, deny his record of creation and history. As though their education, their learning, their understanding were greater than God's. The psychologist and psychiatrist presume to know what fuels and motivates a man. And the arrogance of modern man is that he thinks that he's able to not only identify what's really wrong within the mind and heart of man, but he actually convinces himself that he's got a cure for it. Whether medicinally or through some sort of counsel, he thinks he knows better than God. And educated people, as well as commoners, are prepared to judge God every time His Word condemns the sin that they enjoy. And every one of us, at some, in some way or another, have been found to be questioning God, as the high priest does here, and found Him lacking in our own eyes. The high priest questioned Jesus about His disciples and His teaching. And lest we assume, and this is very important, and lest we, lest we should assume that you and I have escaped these kinds of errors of sitting in judgment over God because of the fact that we're religious, we hold fast to the Scriptures, and we say we're committed to the Gospel, notice this trial is taking place under the oversight of a religious authority. The people in Jesus' day and in ours that are the most likely, the most prone to criticize Jesus and place Him and His teaching in the hot seat are those that profess to know and love God. Consider from Acts chapter 17 for a moment with me. Acts chapter 17. See on display here people who are prepared to question and sit in judgment and criticize God. Acts 17 verse 23. And following says this, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Excuse me, back up to verse 22 and we'll continue once again. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Not unreligious people, very religious people. And then he says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. 
Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of our own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God's not the result of the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Here's the picture given to us there. The relationship, what's the, what does that have to do with this high priest setting himself up as an authority over Jesus and that continuing to our day today? Well, here's what it has to do with that. This isn't limited to those who are not religious. These very religious people, they look at, they look at the message that Paul is delivering and there they are and they've got their unknown God that they don't know much about and they've got all their pagan gods that look an awful lot like them. But the unknown God they don't know much about you see, the criticism and rejection of the gospel that's even demonstrated there, the rejection of Christ is not limited to those who are unreligious. Religious. And here's the thing. The question is not, are you religious? It's not, are you seeking God in your own mind in some way? The question is this. Are you trusting Christ and not sitting in judgment over His Word? And the sad reality is that there are many who profess to know Him, and they are actively opposed to Him. And yet in their ignorance, they think that they're following Christ. But to them, He's nothing more than an unknown God. To those who have not been reconciled to God in Christ, all their pursuit of religion is really an unknown thing. It's something they don't really understand. The high priest then questioned Jesus about His disciples and His teaching. The last thing that we notice about this verse is that the high priest was asserting something. He's almost implying something here. Do you know what it is? And this as well is going to be related to that text in Acts 17. The high priest here is assuming, he's implying that the teachings of Jesus were unknown. That Jesus' words had been unclear. When he's questioning Jesus, he's asking Jesus almost as if to say, you're, you're a conundrum to us. We don't really understand. You've been doing a bunch of secret stuff. Let's have it. Speak in the open. Speak plainly. And we can see that in light of how Jesus responds to this in the context. And the error of assuming that the message of Christianity is something that's unknown or undefined and not clear persists today. And this is why. There, there's, there's a reason why people will worship an unknown God, even as they did there in Athens. There's a reason why people today are prepared to worship a God who cannot be defined. Or to describe the God who is as unknowable. And this is it. An unknown and unknowable God is useful. Very useful. Do you know why that is? An unknown unknown God is useful. You see, for some people, you can attribute, the atheist let's say, you can attribute a number of things to God, to an unknown God, to discourage people away from Him, as I say, atheists do. They'll often present straw man arguments about God and they'll imagine God to be things that He's not in order to persuade people to dislike Him. Consider it this way. An atheist might say, well, if, there, if God, if there is a God who's all-powerful and sees and knows everything, He's not a very good God or He wouldn't let all the suffering happen in the world. The God that you're looking to, He doesn't really care about people dying in plagues, earthquakes, and all the diseases in the land. He doesn't really care about people. So he's not a very good God trying to take something that's not actually true about God. It's not really knowable, but they present God in a way that's false. They present an unknown God. They appeal to that which is unknown and to them and their listeners. And then all it takes is a little bit of ignorance to fuel their lies. And that's the atheist, but also an unknown God is equally useful to religious people. You understand why that is? A God who can't be known or defined or understood clearly. That kind of a God, if He can't be defined, then I'm free to define Him any way which allows me to continue enjoying my sin. I can do what I want. My God, He doesn't mind it if I practice this or that or sin in this way or that way. If He's not knowable, 
Someone says, well, you may think that that may be what you think God's like, but I think God's more like this. And he's okay with the things that I want to do, which the scriptures say that he hates. And in addition to this, an unknown God is one that I can claim to have gotten special, secret, private information from. This really is is going to begin to drive us in the direction we need to go in our text today. An unknown God. A God that's not knowable. A God with a secret message that's not known to the masses is one that I can say, listen, God has visited me. He's talked to me. He's spoken things to me. He's communicated privately to me. And if you want to have access to Him... You're going to have to listen to what I tell you. You're going to have to take my word for it. You're going to have to trust me on the matter. And that is exactly how every single cult gets started. You understand this? I mean, you take it. You go and look. You've got the same type of thing, whether you're talking about Islam, you're talking about Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, all of these folks, their entire system depends on this pattern. They got some special revelation from God that you can't really quantify. You can't really test it. You can't really ever find those those golden tablets that supposedly were found that started the Mormon religion. You can't find those things today, but they existed somewhere. There was some secret, mysterious knowledge that's not available, that's not been openly proclaimed, and it allows them to manipulate and twist their listeners. Consider what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says this, beginning in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You see the significance of what Paul's saying to Timothy there? There are people who are coming along and they're focusing a lot on things that you can't really prove one way or the other. These are myths. They're uncertainties. They're highlighting and focusing on uncertain things that they can't demonstrate from the Scriptures, from the truth, and they're acquiring for them people. They want to be teachers. They want to have a a following, a crowd. They acquire these followers through manipulating the truth. And here's here's what I'm telling you. Ignorance begets error, and error begets abuse. And the Christian gospel, as we're going on to see, is a message which is hinged upon clear, unequivocated declarations of objective truth. And so look with me at how the Lord Jesus responds to this arrogant assertion that Jesus had somehow or another been only saying what really mattered in private where no one could hear it. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. What a contrast we see here with Jesus, don't we? Jesus answers the attitude of the high priest. Tell us what things you've kept secret. Jesus says, the message that I've come to deliver deliver and proclaim is not one that's ever been hidden or declared in secret, but one spoken of openly. And think about the very nature of the beginning of John's Gospel with me once again. Listen to this and ask yourself this. Is this proclamation from John back in John chapter 1 that I'm about to read, is this a message which makes you think that Jesus has come to conceal things and keep them hidden? That's what I want you to be asking yourself here today. And the reason this is important, and, and so that I don't lose you, maybe I should compel you with this thought. There are many times when Christians who don't understand the depths of God's Word, they don't understand what God is doing, they have this idea almost as if they're separated from a knowledge of God's love and it's not available to them. It hasn't been set forth to them. They're separated and and it's kind of kept away from them in in a part. Well, think about this. This So what John tells us. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Interesting. 
Jesus is the light of men. He's bringing light and understanding. He's setting forth understanding, bringing awareness and understanding to men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcome. See, the insinuation of the high priest here is that Jesus is bringing darkness, confusion, not understanding and light. The reality is the world that Jesus came into is full of darkness and he brings light. And then we go on to read a little bit further on in John chapter 1, verse 14, that this word and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. For we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, not confusion and chaos, grace and truth. He came bringing truth. And then you press on and read verse 17 and 18. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus came publicly and openly making God known. He did not come into the world in order to conceal the truth, but to reveal it. Now, I want to suggest to you that that truth, that Jesus reveals the Father, reveals truth, He doesn't do things in secret or in private, that He does things openly to the world, the message of the Gospel has been set in full display openly to all creation through Jesus Christ and His people taking the message to the world. But let me, let me compel you with this idea. Jesus demonstrates the character of God, but you know God has revealed Himself from the very beginning as a God who desires to communicate himself to man. God wants to make himself known. He, he's pleased to make himself known. Just briefly, you can take this down from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. God making himself known, not, not desiring that man should be separated from God and not know him. This is what we're told. Verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Think on this. Throughout the record of creation, you read again and again and again. And the Lord said, God said, and God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. Again and again, we read, and God said. Well, here in this text, we read after God's made man and woman in his own image. And then God said to them, that's incredible. That's remarkable. For the first time in all creation, we see God communicating to man who he's made in his own image. And I'm, I'm submitting to you that the very heart of God and his purpose in creating us is that we would know and enjoy relationship with him. And God's method of both initiating and maintaining that relationship is by speaking to us, by revealing himself to us, making himself known, not hiding in the shadows and hoping that man somehow or another on his own figures it out because he won't. God taking the initiative, speaking to man, engaging with man. There's a thought I want to leave with you, a scripture I want to share with you in light of this from Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13. And much of the rest of what we have to say in the sermon today is going to center around this idea. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this. God promises, you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart. Does that sound like a God who wants to not be found? Does that sound like a God who's hiding from man and doesn't want man to know where he is or what he's doing? He says to you today, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do you want to find God? Whether you're lost and not converted yet, you're outside of Christ. Do you want to find God? Or as a Christian, do you feel far from God today? Do you feel as though your sin has separated you from God? Do you not have a sense of the nearness of God in your life? I'm asking, do you want to find God? Do you want to have your soul enraptured with the knowledge of God's love for you? Do you want to know that? He says, 
You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Is that something that you're doing? In light of that scripture, I believe God's good purpose could not be clearer. He desires that we should seek Him and He's pleased to make Himself known to those who seek Him with all their heart. And so, you know many people, I've heard this, many people, they've prepared to tell me that they've sought God. They're seeking God. They're hurting. They're burdened. They'll say, I'm seeking God. I've prayed to God. My heart is full of sorrow and misery and I'm seeking God and He's not answering me. He's not answering me. He's not coming to me. He's not sustaining me. He's not fulfilling me. I'm seeking God. But where is He? How often is that expressed in the Scriptures even from the Psalms? Let me me ask you something. If you tell me today, I've tried and tried and tried. I've sought God and He's not answered me. The promise of the Bible says if you seek Him with all your heart, you will find Him. Now there's only two possibilities here. If you tell me I'm seeking God and I'm not finding Him, either God's lying or you are. Is there any other option? God says if you seek Me with your whole heart, you will find Me. If you say I'm seeking Him and I'm not finding Him, I can guarantee you it's not because God's lying. What does that take us though? What does that prompt in us? Well, Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. Consider this. We read, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, there will not be a single person on the day of judgment be able to stand up and say, I sought God with all my heart and I didn't find Him. If you seek Him, He promises you will find Him. And so if you're one here today that might be so bold as to answer honestly and say that though you may have sought Him in some form or fashion, that you have not sought Him with all your heart, with all your affections, and that you've been distracted and captivated by fleeting pleasures in this world other than Him, if you would be honest about that, I do have some very good news for you. But let me ask, why is it that we don't seek God with all our heart? Why is it that there's this problem? Why isn't everyone who's miserable and wishes God would just do something for them? Why don't they find an answer to their trouble? Well, consider from Romans 3 verses 9 through 12. Romans 3 verses 9 through 12. A very common thing to hear, but think about this in light of your own pursuit of God. And even as a Christian, there's a strong application we're working towards. Consider this. Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. No one seeks for God. According to the Bible, not a single person seeks for God. God says, if you seek me with all your heart, you're going to find me. And yet no one seeks for God. How do you reconcile these two things? What sense do we make of this? And furthermore, the diagnosis is God will reveal himself to those who seek him. No one's seeking him. Why is it that no one's seeking him? Why is it? What's the problem? Consider again, back from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, immediately after the fall, in the context of the fall, as a matter of fact, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, Adam and Eve have sinned. They've been made aware of their nakedness and their shame. They make these loincloths out of fig leaves, and it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's the explanation why people don't seek God. They've been made aware of their guilt and their shame. They're afraid and they don't want to seek God. They don't want to be in the presence of God with the knowledge of their sin. 
That's why man does not seek God. You see, we've been too busy trying to hide ourselves from God to seek Him. Isn't that exactly what's pictured there? Adam, he's not seeking God, he's hiding from God, trying to cover himself from God. You know, it's been suggested, and I believe it's a, a, a true reality, is that the reason that people don't seek God is the same reason that criminals don't seek out law enforcement. That's why we don't seek God. Because of our guilt. Our feeling of unworthiness. And a knowledge of the fact that our sin is crying out against us even as it was against Adam. Now here's something remarkable. And that's a pretty doom and gloom and terrifying and sad message up until this point. That they do not seek God. Annas here, the high priest, is not seeking God in John's Gospel. The servant who strikes Jesus on the face is not seeking God. He doesn't want God. If they were seeking God with all their heart in light of Jesus' open proclamation of Himself, they would have found Him. And if you're here today and you're saying, I'm hurting and I'm sorrowful and life is difficult and I need God to do something, if you seek Him, you will find Him. The reason you're not finding God is never God's fault. He says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. God does not leave you or abandon you. It's your guilt that keeps you from wanting to seek God with all your heart. But this is the glory and wonder of God's grace and compassion. And this is demonstrated there in Genesis 3 as well. That although men hide in the bushes and refuse to seek God, God is pleased to seek them. Even as he did with Adam. Isn't that good? God makes himself known to people who don't want to be known by him. People who don't want to find God, God goes and finds them. If that were not the case, then none of us would be here today. None of us would have any profession of faith whatsoever. None seek after God, but God seeks after them. Verse 21 of John 18, Jesus asks, or Jesus says, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, in keeping with this theme that Jesus has made an open testimony, an open declaration of the truth, He's further revealing to us here just how clear and open His message had been. And sometimes you might like to think that the Gospel of Christ is some deep, profound, and unknowable message which is only really to be understood and shared by experts, by preachers and evangelists, and that you're not really able to declare really the key elements of what Jesus Christ and His Gospel are. But Jesus indicates here, it would seem, that pretty much anybody who'd ever heard Him teach should be able to understand the core elements of what He had to say. He says, if you want to know what I had to teach and what I had to say, just go find somebody who heard me teach. It was open. It was plain. It was clear. It was simple. Now, that's not to say there are many times we see Jesus with His own disciples and explaining things more deeply to them. But the depths and the searching out the deep things of God is glorious for the people of God. But the Christian gospel which He came proclaiming was a very simple, plain, and clear message. And He was very honest about it. Now there's a compelling question which ought to be stirring you up a little bit in light of what Jesus says here. Jesus says, ask those who have heard Me and what I said to them. They know what I said. Are you prepared to tell people that might ask you what His message was? If someone said to you, okay, you're a Christian. What did Jesus teach? What was the heart and center of Jesus' message on the earth? What did Jesus have to say? What was Jesus' Gospel? What is it about Jesus? If someone said that to you, what would you tell them? What would you have to say to someone who asked you about that? And let me suggest to you that if your answer to someone who asked you about Christ is a complicated one, it's probably not the right one. If your answer to them is about all the different things that even makes us as a church here unique and different from other churches, that's not the right answer to this question. The right answer is not a complex answer. It's a very simple answer. Jesus, His teaching, His ministry, it has depths that we have not even yet fathomed and yet on the surface and most significantly is a very plain, open, clear message. So what would you say? And then next, we begin to see the response of this sinful, fallen human being to the merciful and clear revelation of God. Verse 22. 
When Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you would answer the high priest? I must confess that's staggering to me to think about. Someone actually raising their hand to strike the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, well, I'm going to hold that thought for a second, but pay attention to this. The blindness of sin. The blindness of a man lost in sin. Jesus says, you want to know what I said? I've been very open, very honest. I've said it plainly to everywhere I went. I've spoken honestly and plainly. And someone strikes him in the face. What for? Is this how you answer the high priest? Essentially, man in sin is miserably consumed with sorrow inside because he is indeed separated from God. But notice the misery is multiplied and that even when the truth is before them, the dark heart can only respond by lashing out and striking at God and assuming that he has the right to sit in judgment over God. And the truth is that by nature, we will not have God to rule over us. Jesus proclaims, what I've said, I've said plainly, smacks him to the ground almost, it would seem. Well, who do you think you are talking to the high priest, this religious authority? You're a nobody. You're a, a, a rabbi of nothing from Nazareth. Well, we tend to think that God is subject to us, even as this officer assumed that Jesus was subject to the high priest. Verse 23 Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? I thought about something in the call to worship there from Psalm 141. The cry that goes up there. There's this praising God for a righteous hand striking Him. Do you remember hearing that in the reading? It's a good thing whenever the righteous strike me. It's like an oil, a good rebuke of a righteous man. It's like an oil on my head. It's a blessing and a good thing. Jesus almost as if to say... It would be good and right if you're correcting a wrong. But what have I done wrong? And by the way, Jesus is the righteous one. The one who's being struck here, smitten here. Well, Jesus' response here reminds us of the ignorance and futility of striving against God. You see, every man is justified in his own eyes. And notice this. Jesus here says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. Not a word. Not a word. We go immediately from our text here in John 18. We see Jesus saying this to him. What follows this? He strikes him. Jesus responds with this question. And then the next thing we see is they're taking him off to Caiaphas. Not another word. Not an answer. They don't have an answer to give. In other words, there is no justification for what he just did to Jesus. He has no good reason for striking him. Now think of this. If any attempt could have been made to justify this cruel behavior, surely it would have been offered. Well, I'll tell you why I hit you. If you hit somebody in the face, you know what? You got a reason for it. And if they ask you why, you're probably going to be pretty inclined to tell them if you've got a legitimate reason. This guy's got no answer. And I say, I'm suggesting to you that I believe there are going to be many people who imagine that when they stand before God, they're going to have all their reasons, all their excuses, all their explanations for how they lived and why they did what they did. And they think when they stand before God, they're going to be able to tell Him and convince Him, this is why I did it. Every man's justified in his own eyes and he thinks he's going to convince God that what he did was just and okay. And yet, the truth which will silence all those who scoff against God, I believe, is going to be as deafening as it is telling. Those who think they're going to rail against God or tell Him how it really is, their mouths will be stopped as they sit before Him with the knowledge of all their shame and all their guilt, and they'll be as silent as this man was here. There will be no just defense or excuse for our sin. Verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The final thing in our text is that when their trying and their testing of Jesus has been exhausted and they have no just answer to respond to him with, they usher him along to be tried by someone else. Here's what we see. Man in sin, whenever he finds that he's unable to justify his sin against God, he'll often look for others who can help him to do so. 
If I can't come up with a good explanation for what I'm doing, well, maybe there's somebody else out there who can kind of come alongside me. That's why people will will appeal to people with degrees and higher critics. And they'll say, listen, this guy's really smart and he knows a lot of things. And he tells me God really didn't create the world in six days. And he's really smart. And I don't have to believe in your God because the Bible is probably not really true because it was written by men. And look at all these scholars who will corroborate their accounts. Men band together against God to excuse their sin when they don't have anything else to say. This is the message. This is the historical account. And these are some of the applications. But I really want to dive into something that's evident in these truths as we kind of move in the direction of a close. What is the central focus of the plain message Jesus came to proclaim? What is it? What is this teaching that wicked men reject? Jesus is saying, essentially, you ought to know the truth is evident. I have been honest. I have declared it openly. Everywhere I've gone, I've been honest about this. Mark starts his gospel that says that Jesus came and He began His ministry and He was crying out, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel from the get-go openly in the public arena. He went about doing this. What is the essential elements of that message? I've heard men sometimes and they get up and they'll say the name Jesus Christ maybe 40 or 50 times over the course of a sermon. Or they'll say the word gospel again and again. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. But they never actually tell you what the gospel is. They never actually tell you what God has done. What is the truth of the central focus of Jesus' message, which He says He has been very open about? What is it? Well, Jesus makes a reference in our text to His declaration of His teaching in the synagogues and the temple. And so I want to consider one of these recorded occasions. There are a number we can look at of Jesus' proclamations in the public arena. But I just want to look at one from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 22. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 22. Beginning in verse 16, here's a public proclamation when Jesus is beginning His ministry. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Here he is in this very public place in Nazareth at the synagogue. And he's telling them, this was my message. This is what I came to proclaim. This is who I am. And the message of the gospel, which he did declare to the world, is that the living God has determined to make Himself known. And the way He's made Himself known is in His Son by sending Him into the world to rescue and redeem a people for Himself. This is the the key message again and again and again. This is the focus. But the problem is, and if you go and read the rest of that accounting, the people who were at one time, it seems that they're really excited. They're receiving this gracious word. It says that there in the text that they marveled. They spoke well of him. Gracious words. And then if you go on and read, he talks to them about how, yeah, and then the time that's gone by in the past, 
God did things amongst His people and yet the majority of the people that were witnessing what God was doing were left out and they were on the outside and they weren't included because they didn't know and love God. Just a handful here and there at times it seems. And here's the point. Men and women are happy to agree with a message that tells them that God is for them. That God is interested in giving them what they want and that they're as right in God's eyes as they are in their own. But that's not really the kind of people Jesus came for. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus came for another cause. Consider the elements that are brought out in this quotation from Isaiah. Jesus says He came for the poor. Jesus came for the poor in spirit that have no righteousness of their own. That's who He came for. Jesus says He came for captives. to set These captives at liberty who are enslaved to sin. Jesus says He came for the spiritually blind who could not see the truth. Those who are blind to the truth, He came to give them eyes to see. Jesus says He came for those who were oppressed and tormented by difficulty, strife, and evil. Those who were hiding from God, not seeking God, He came to work in them. Jesus says that He came to bring redemption. That's what it means there. Whenever it says there at the end of that telling that Jesus, He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to proclaim a year of jubilee when all your debts are forgiven. All the debts you've accumulated against yourself, God says they're no more. And these people are blinded by their own sin, their own guilt, their own shame, and they recoil with hatred to a message like this. And they either hide in the bushes or they seek to kill the messenger. That's what they did with Jesus, isn't it? Kill the messenger. Well, essentially, Jesus came to save sinners. And this is the remarkable truth. This is the glory of God's revelation of Himself. I suppose it's right to say that for all eternity within the divine and triune relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit enjoyed perfect harmony and communication and fellowship and love for one another. And God's very revelation of Himself from the beginning, at the beginning of creation, is including man in that. He's going to communicate with one outside of that triune relationship. And then, of course, man falls and he's in sin and he's separated from the love of God. And then God comes to him and says, I'm not done with you. I'm going to communicate and reveal myself to you who's not seeking me. This is the glory of the gospel. That though men are excluded from that promise we heard about earlier, the promise that if you seek Him with all your heart, you will find Him, every human being is excluded from that promise by virtue of the fact that their heart is darkened and they're not seeking Him. What does it matter if God says, if you seek Me with all your heart, you'll find Me, to those who aren't seeking Him? How is that good news? Well, here's the reason. This Jesus, the way in which He comes, the way in which He proclaims good news to poor people, the way that He proclaims liberty to captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and liberty to the oppressed and the forgiveness of your debt, the way He does that is that Jesus is in the business of giving people new hearts so that they will seek Him. Jesus is in the business of dealing with people in such a way. And so there's really two final closing thoughts that I'll leave with you. And these, this is what they are. To the lost here, to those who are not yet Christians, you have not had your eyes open to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And to that person, Jesus makes those who are given to Him by the Father alive by His Spirit. The Jesus proclaimed in this book is one who's able to do that. And then to those who are genuinely Christian, those who love Christ, you know that He is your Lord and Master, and yet you feel wayward, down, sorrowful, beaten up like God's not near to you here today. He's pleased to quicken with fresh mercy. This Jesus rekindles the desires of His people for Himself with grace and compassion. God comes to you. This is people almost have this skewed view of God. 
They don't realize the heart of God on display as he's wooing his people to himself. He's coming to them, speaking to them, showing them his mercy and his tenderness. And here is the final thought I'll leave you with your your understanding of these things, of the clarity with which Christ has spoken and the, 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 the way in which he accomplishes these things. is contained in these three realities. All that God the Father has given to Jesus will come to Him. And as He said, when Jesus Christ is lifted up, He will draw all His people to Himself. And Jesus guarantees that He will build His church. And His clear message for us today is not complicated. It's not hard. Very simple. Do you want... The life of God in your soul. Do you want to know the love of God? Do you want to experience as a Christian the nearness of God to you? I submit to you that if you find, if you think I'm seeking Him and not finding Him, that there's something within you. You're not seeking Him with all your heart. And this isn't some legalistic thing where it's like, well, how do I know? What's the measure? How do I know if it's all my heart? Is He your chief desire? Do you find that when you pray and even your things that you ask God have an end on the other side of them? God, I'm seeking you. What for? For some benefit or blessing that's not God. Seeking Him with all your heart. He is the treasure. He is the reward. He is the end and the aim. I'll tell you this. God is so good that if you're His, if you belong to Jesus Christ, And there are things within you that you're desiring above Him. He is faithful to let you not be satisfied by them. To let you feel a sense of ruin. To let you see that He is not your greatest desire. That you might turn again and seek Him with your whole heart. I pray that you would. So with that, I'll ask you to bow and we'll close the sermon in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord our God, I know that my own heart is weakened by the flesh. And Father, I know that before You came and spoke life to me, that as I was in sin and rebellion, I would never have sought You. By Your mercy, You extended grace. By Your Spirit, have given life. You have caused us to seek You. Given us the ability to chase after You. And Lord, I know Your Word indicates You're not only interested in outward obedience and a pursuit of law-keeping and morals, but You want our heart. You want us to want You. God, I pray that our hearts would be kindled afresh as we hear of the merciful and kind and grace gracious and compassionate words of our Savior. Lord, lead us to Him. I pray that You would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, Amen.